Good morning, I'm Loreto Rojas. And I'm Cal Winslow. This morning, we are back with another segment in our occasional series of programs concerned with Hispanic culture, or more correctly, our Latin culture and cultures today. We continue to move from our discussions of the southern border, where we brought in experts to talk about the crisis of immigration, to a much bigger picture now that takes us farther to the south. And this morning, we are going to look at Venezuela, a country often in the news when we do hear reports. They are often contradictory, at best hostile more often. So we will talk with a scholar hopeful to sort out fact from fiction. Mike Gonzalez is Emeritus Professor of Latin America Studies at Glasgow University in Scotland. He has written widely on Latin American politics and culture most recently on the Marxism of José Carlos Mariátegui on Chile and on the Pink Tide in Latin America. He is the author of The Ebb of the Pink Tide, The Last Drop, The Politics of Water, and Hugo Chávez, Socialist for the 21st Century. He has co-authored Arms and the People, which looks at the role of the military rank and file in revolutionary situations. He co-edited the Rutledge Encyclopedia of Contemporary Latin American and Caribbean Culture. He has been active in socialist politics for many years and has contributed to radio, particularly the BBC, uh, as well as writing for theater. Good morning, Professor Gonzalez. Good morning. Can we call you Mike? Absolutely. Jumping right into things, we'll repeat what we said last time. We're, like most Americans, a bit geographically challenged. Can you give us a, a sort of thumbnail, a brief thumbnail sketch of Venezuela and its people? A brief thumbnail sketch. Yes, I can try. It's quite a, it's quite difficult to do in, in a thumbnail. It is um, Venezuela is in the north, uh, the northeast of the continent of South America. It's a Caribbean country. It is very much a Caribbean culture as well, though it has it's 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 large. It's an oil producing country with the second largest reserves in the world, and it stretches from the Andes in in the north, where it borders on Colombia, to the to the state of Bolivar, where it borders on on, on Brazil in the south. Uh, and um, its coasts look out on the Caribbean, and and you know Trinidad is is a few miles from the coast of, of Venezuela. It it has significant and important indigenous populations in the north and in the south. The Pemones in the south, the Uspas in the north. It's a country which is, I, I suppose, you could say, it's dominated above all things by its oil. Its oil as so often happens with oil-producing countries, dominates and shapes the country to an extraordinary extent. Um, and um, the oil that was discovered in in, in the uh, in Sulia province around Lake Maracaibo uh, was discovered at the end of the 19th century. And um, the uh, budding multinationals were waiting with bated breath and, and moved in on Venezuela to appropriate and to control these enormous oil reserves. So oil has shaped Venezuela. 
could I uh, also ask you a little bit about for more background about just for our listeners, how did you get interested in, in Latin America through your education, your family? Your... Well, yeah, I'm the, I'm the child of, of two exiles. My father was, was a, a Spanish communist who left Spain at the end of the Spanish Civil War, escaping the bombs that fell on Barcelona, um, and from there went to Britain uh, by a fairly circuitous route via uh, a few uh, Vichy concentration camps. My mother was, uh, by contrast, an Austrian Jew, middle class, lived in Vienna until the Anschluss, which was the moment when Hitler occupied Germany. And she, along with the majority of, of uh, Austrian Jews, fled, uh, in her case, across the across the Channel and ended up in Britain, you know, the circuitous route. So that was the culture I grew up in. Two languages, two exiles. and um, But, of course, Spain was therefore very present for me. And uh, I didn't speak Spanish as I grew up, though I consider myself bilingual now. But um, but Spain was there, you know, as the as the dramatic background to my to my father's life. Why Latin America? Well, the answer to that is because I grew up in the 60s and Latin America, which was a, uh, an unknown place for most for most of us, you know, until I suppose the, the maybe the Cuban Revolution started it all. Anyway, that's you know I came to university and began to study Latin America as an extension of of the world, the Spanish speaking world, but also because my generation discovered Latin America in a rather different way from the way in which my father's antecedents had by conquering it. We uh, became aware of um, of Latin America because of its, if you like, its revolutionary potential. Thank you, Mike, for that. Sadly enough, as you know, and many of our listeners may, re may remember, the Cuban revolution may have uh, been a successful revolution, but then in the rest of Latin America, we suffered terribly from a bunch of dictatorships. I'm from Chile, oh, yeah. so I have my own <laughs> background in enduring dictatorships and uh, brutality from the government. You were explaining a little bit about uh, Venezuela. Am I right when I say that Venezuela was part of a larger state at the beginning of the Spanish presence in America? Venezuela well, was part of Colombia. Is that right? No, that's, that's not quite right. I mean, the, 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 um, the Spanish administration of Latin America was a single administration, a colonial administration, in which there were administrative units, one of which was based in, you know, the, 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 they were viceroyalties, the viceroyalty of Peru, of Colombia, and so on. But, of course, Venezuela, Colombia, Ecuador, all of these individual countries are the product of the independence wars at the beginning of the 19th century, when, you know, various armies and, and of course, the central figure in, in, in that era was Simón Bolívar. And Bolívar will, you know, when we talk about Chávez, there'll be a chance to talk a bit more about Bolívar, who led the independence movement for Spain in, in one part of it, along with San Martín and the lower part of the, of, the, of the country. So these countries which now exist, these independent countries, were formed in the aftermath of the colonial administration of Latin America. So they were formed 
in a series of different conflicts, but Bolivar's plan, Bolivar's vision was of what he called Gran Colombia. You know, that would essentially be what is now Colombia, Ecuador, and Venezuela now. But um, you know, they were they were they didn't exist as independent countries until that process of independence. And in that in in the course of that, well, different uh, pressure groups, different dominant classes in each of those areas fought to conserve the different parts of the empire for themselves. So we ended up with these 20 separate republics, each with their own history, uh, a history of, uh, in many cases, of, as you said, of dictatorship, oppression, of impression of the indigenous peoples and so on. Okay, so um, you've started uh, on the Bolivarian Revolution. We, I was going to ask you about that, and maybe uh, there might be a bit more to say. We've all heard about the pink tide, which seems to have come and gone and, and come again, and mm -hmm. the Bolivarian Revolution and uh, the Chavez regime. Can you help sort this out for us? <laughs> yes, I'll sort it out. It would be a big aspiration. Let, let, let me talk for a minute about Simon Bolivar and what he represented. I mean, he's a mythical, iconic figure about which there are many legends, many many true, others less less precise. But he represents the impulse to break from the uh, break free from, of the empire of Spain. What does he represent? Well, you know, he's described himself and is described as a revolutionary on the basis that he led a struggle and, you know, very courageously and was a very a fascinating figure. Uh, but he came from the power, from the, the wealthiest landed classes of what is now Venezuela, who in many cases were the leaders uh, in Latin America of the, you know, it was the, the landed classes. So independence was an effort by powerful people, landowning the, the the wealthier classes of Latin America to establish independent administrations under their control. Republics, in other words, free from, freed from the from the control of the Spanish Empire. So Bolivar led that, and he is the, if you like, the symbol of Venezuela's independence from from the Spanish Empire. All of this took place in the 1820s and 1830s when these independence republics were finally set up at a different rhythm because in each case the struggle took slightly had slightly different characteristics. But, but that's where he came from. Bolívar is an absolutely fundamental figure. He's a fundamental figure not just as the historical leader, the figure who represents the, the, the independence movement. It was an independence movement which was, in a sense, driven by... Um, ideas of uh, political independence and, and political autonomy modeled, I suppose, on in the French Revolution, the post on, on the French Revolution as a kind of model of how to organize a society. It wasn't revolution, it was revolutionary in the sense that it, it, it was based on the necessity to drive out the colonial administration established autonomous separate countries with their own administrations and their own government and and in their case in, the, in their own parliaments the history of of, of bolivar's struggle is fascinating but 
I think more more interest more important really is that the central idea that Bolivar had, and what, and I'll come. I'll, this is complicated. I'll come back to speak about it in a minute in in relation to Chavez, but what Bolivar was fighting for was for a, if you like, for a pan-American uh, um, alliance, for um, a Gran Colombia, which would be an independent Latin America, self-governing Latin America. So what does Bolivar represent, you know, 150 years later? For Chavez and for those around him, Chavez describes himself as a Bolivarian. And this is important because it suggests one central feature of his of his politics was the idea of unifying the distinct republics of Latin America into a single alliance. Um, and that was certainly Bolivar's idea to forge a unified and united Latin America. Mike, what you are saying naturally led me to think about the United States, which it seems to be a, a similar concept at the beginning, perhaps? Uh, well, I'm no expert on, on the history of the United States, but um, it, it, in, a, in a way that the... the um, I may be wrong about this, but as I understand it, the, the, the dominant idea um, in, in the creation of the United States was federal. That is a series of distinct units uh, with a, a kind of federal constitution. Bolivar was an admirer of the United of the United States and connected with it. But uh, I think he saw things in a slightly more centralized way. In other words, that there would be a unified and centralized Pan-American Federation, although Pan-America would be a single unit. Um, but with its independence republics, I suppose, as in a federal relationship with each other. But um, in the end, what emerged were different and conflicting republics. But Bolivar's name is associated with this idea of a united Latin America, a unity of Latin American states, uh, opposed to colonial administrations and uh, independent politically and economically. The kind of economic vision he had was... was um, was of a really of a burgeoning capitalist Latin America, uh, a federation of capitalist economies, independent of uh, of external control. That was that was the Bolivarian idea. But the important thing is, it was a it was a you know it was a bourgeois capitalist view. It wasn't it wasn't socialist, you know, nor could it be at the beginning of the nineteenth century. So. It's important to, to try and make sense of the fact that Hugo Chavez, a man whose name and whose whose role became associated with what he called a 21st century socialism, though I, I think we should talk about what that means, but he also called himself a Bolivarian. And when he won the presidential election in 1999 and put forward a, a proposal for a new constitution, it was a constitution for what would be called the Bolivarian Republic of Venezuela. So it's worth thinking about what that means. And essentially what it means is that really it means he was a revolutionary nationalist, that he had an idea of Venezuela which was nationalist and based on its on its uh, independent history and so on. 
and a vision which saw Venezuela in the context of a Latin American federation. Now, what that actually came, I mean, it's quite interesting if I can just go into this in a minute. You know, when Hugo Chavez was emerging, um, he, you know, he was born in the in the north of of uh, Venezuela in the region called Los Llanos, you know, the open plains, grass plains, cowboy country, if you like, of northern Venezuela. He came from a humble background, but in Venezuela, unlike Colombia, where in order to reach any kind of officer role in the armed forces, you have to be a member of the powerful landed classes. In Venezuela, for various reasons, it was possible for a young man from a background like his to become an officer in the army. And uh, he therefore joined the army. It's a bit of a myth, really, about Chavez, because he was a baseball fanatic. So he always claimed that he didn't he wasn't really interested in the army. He just wanted to join the baseball team. But, um, you know, they didn't recruit people to join the baseball team. They recruited people to join the army, which he did and became quite successful and became a, a an instructor in the military academy and so on. And, um, you know, th- that military background is very important to understanding Chavez. So. But he was growing up, he was, you know, active in the 60s. He was growing up in the 60s, growing into his role in the 60s, when the dominant politics of, of, if you like, of resistance in Latin America were, uh, you know, Guevarist. They were about guerrilla resistance and so on. Um, Chavez had contact with those ideas, but he was um, he was a military officer, a member, uh, officer in the parachute regiment. And um, he, uh, although he had his brother, Adan, was uh, closely linked to the Venezuelan guerrilla forces organized by Douglas Bravo and closely linked to Cuba. But he himself was interested and sympathetic and so on, but that was not the political position he took. On the contrary, in the in the late 60s in Latin America, there was a, a kind of emerging, I suppose what we, we could call it military reformism, particularly in Peru, where the uh, government of Velasco Alvarado uh, represented a kind of left-wing military alternative to the guerrilla movement. And I think that, well, there's pretty clear evidence that Chavez, as, a, as an army man, was quite attracted to that. He was also, you know, he kind of um, flirted, I think, with the with the revolutionary left of Douglas Bravo. I was fortunate enough to to meet Bravo and spend time with him, and he was an incredibly charismatic figure, but a revolutionary socialist and a Marxist, which I don't think you could. It wouldn't be right to suggest that Chavez was either of those things. Um, as as he as his career developed through the 1960s and uh, the 1970s in, in in the army, he was more. In fact, he created a kind of conspiratorial group inside the army, and that will become important to understand what kind of what kind of uh, project he was he was defending and fighting for. But because he got to know Douglas Bravo, Bravo had an idea of what he called revolutionary Bolivarianism. In other words, it was a revolutionary nationalism for Bravo, informed by Marxism and by a concept of working class, um, the the role of the working class in the revolution, but also 
with an emphasis on national history, on national culture, and uh, with an emphasis on on nationalism as the basis for building, you know, a, a new kind of republic. So that influenced Chavez. So if you like the two elements of his politics, which can help us to begin to understand where he came from, was one a, a kind of radical nationalism, and the other element was his own role in the military. Because he would later go on to say that the kind of organization he wanted to create, he called civil and military, a civil military alliance. Douglas Bravo disagreed with him and he said, yes, there, he was a Bolivarian for cultural reasons, for historical reasons, but he was also a Marxist and therefore you know, the, the, a central element in any revolutionary movement must be the organized working class. Whereas Chavez, under the influence of some of these radical military governments, certainly believed that the military would play a central political role. And in fact, he organized a, a kind of small conspiratorial group inside the Venezuelan army, many of whom accompanied him to the revolution of 1990, uh, to his own in, in, into government when he became president in 1999, they were there. Um, Mike, Mike, can you just hang on to that point and let me say that this is KZYX Community Radio and this is Loretta Rojas and Cal Winslow and we're talking with Mike Gonzalez, Professor Emeritus at Glasgow University in Scotland. He's the author of many books and articles on Latin America, including a piece just out on Venezuela and published in Truth Out, uh, a piece uh, that everyone can easily find and, and ought to uh, read. And let me uh, just add one more question, uh, but I do want you to, I do hope you can carry on with what you've been saying. But I, I am interested to hear your take on how Chavez became so popular, both in um, Venezuela and uh, internationally. Okay, I think, yeah, let, let me move on to that. How Chavez became so popular? Well, um, he certainly did become popular. So let's start with Venezuela itself. In Venezuela was a country dominated by oil, by oil wealth with a very wealthy middle class that enjoyed the fruits of oil. But it was an economy, too, in which oil dominated at every level. And uh, much of the population, in, there was enormous amount of rural poverty and urban poverty. And people moved towards the center, moved towards Caracas and the main cities, where they lived in, in the, the, I mean, the, 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 their appearance is very familiar. The, the shanty towns or the the barrios of, of the hills around Caracas, where people lived in houses, flimsy, fragile houses built one on top of the other, creeping up the hillsides. Those are the barrios, and they're important. A, poor, a poverty, uh, you know, a, a population of of the poor. The seventies were um, a period of great wealth. Prosperity, of course, that prosperity was not shared. Uh, the, the you know the, the the very wealthy of of Venezuela enjoyed a very um, a, a very good and very luxurious life, uh, enjoying the fruits of oil wealth. Oil, which by the way, 
was was owned and controlled apparently by ostensibly by a, a nationalized uh, oil company, but one which was in fact deeply involved with the multinational companies who controlled uh, the oil oil trade worldwide, oil production worldwide. So Chavez is a young officer. Um, in, I mean, the key event, I think, in recent Venezuelan history occurred on the 23rd of February, 1989. It was called the Caracaso, the rising of, of Caracas. After a decade in which um, the, the IMF and the World Bank had imposed you know, in, increasingly uh, stringent and and uh, oppressive economic policies, which you know, as always, they always go by euphemisms. Structural adjustment, they called it, but the, the, that's just the name for for um, uh, for a politics of austerity, which will fall mainly on the very poor. So, by the end of the 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 uh, by the end of the eighties, uh, Venezuela's poor were living, there was genuine and deepening poverty in, 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 in Venezuela, despite the enormous ostensible wealth of the very few who enjoyed the fruits of oil. And um, the government then announced a new, there was an election campaign and the new president announced that he would refuse to accept the instructions from the IMF. And then in a very familiar story, as soon as he was elected, immediately imposed those, those measures. And the result was, a general, was an urban insurrection called the Caracaso. I mean, Chavez always referred to that and, in a sense, presented himself as the, as the um, champion and representative of that popular rebellion. In fact, it was repressed brutally about 3,000 were killed in the repression. Chavez himself was in the army, which which was involved in the repression, but he was not in Caracas at the time. Uh, and uh, anyway, so the, the Caracas was repressed. The conditions of life became appalling for the majority of the Venezuelan population. And then in April, in, in April of, of 1992, Chavez organized uh, a very short-lived military coup against the government. Uh, it was interesting because it lasted 24 hours and he announced uh, a coup against the government. You know, who, who was involved in it? Well, largely this small group of radical military men around him. But what was important was that it failed and he acknowledged it, but he went on television to say to people that the coup had not prospered, and the coup was over. But he used a phrase at the end of his at the end of his television broadcast. He said, "It's over for now, for ahora." And that phrase "for ahora" then started to appear on every wall, on graffiti, you know, because it was an announcement that there would be another <laughs> coup anyway. And he was jailed. But he became, you know, quite very well known. He, you know, he, he made an impact, and he was seen as a bit of a hero by the by the by the poorer population, by the working class population of um, of Venezuela. And in jail, he did quite a lot of organizing, drawing people around him, creating a kind of political alliance. 
But there was a dispute because Douglas Bravo said, well, you know, it has to be a revolutionary movement. It has to take root in the working class. And Chavez said, yes. But when it came to the crunch, he essentially seemed to see the military as really the instrument that would bring about political and economic change. Anyway, uh, in, 19, in 1999, there was a presidential election and he was uh, the alternative candidate. He stood as, as a candidate with this reputation for being, a, you know, a, he was extremely, um, extremely, uh, what's the word, you know, very popular, very charismatic, and above all, I think the important thing is that in a country where the dominant political class were the white, wealthy people of Spanish background, you know, uh, educated and so on, he, in his appearance and in his speech, was a man of the people. And that, you know, that may seem not very significant, but it was highly significant that he would be immediately recognizable for his chiseled facial features, which said something of an of an indigenous, his indigenous background and the way he spoke and so on. Everybody immediately recognized he's one, of, you know, people in the barrio said he's one of us. Um, and the alternative candidate in the election was uh, the daughter, was somebody who lived in the wealthiest districts of Venezuela and had been Miss Venezuela. Um, so not much of a contest, you'd say. And the third candidate was a wealthy banker. Anyway, but Chavez won the election. Uh, and uh, to everybody's amazement and astonishment. Now, yes, he was charismatic. You know, he was a very good speaker. He, you know, pe he, people identified with him. And there's no doubt about that. He was a, he was a popular uh, and populist politician. But there's also, in, in, that isn't sufficient explanation for the role he came to play. The other explanation, the other part of the explanation in what was happening in Latin America, remember the Berlin Wall had come down. So um, if you like, the, the socialist project was deeply, was being deeply questioned at all sorts of levels. The left was terribly disoriented. And you know, in the, in the, this, by the way, his election was in 1999. In in the 1990s, Latin America was completely dominated by neoliberal governments and neoliberal economy, which essentially boiled down to the imposition of a of of, of the harshest form of capitalist exploitation around the continent, and, and governments which both approved and implemented the kind of austerity programs which had caused you know, the insurrection in Venezuela in 1999, in 1989. So you could say really that the the Venezuelan insurrection was the mark, uh, was a mark of uh, an aggressive neoliberalism being imposed all over the continent, impoverishing rural populations, increasing and deepening the rates of exploitation, enriching the few at the expense of the many, um, undermining, for example, any attempt in any of the countries of Latin America to create a, any form of welfare state, employing back any money that had gone to the state, to social programs and so on, through austerity programs. 
So Chavez came to power promising to deal with that. And he came with, I suppose, with central, his central policies were um, to, uh, to, uh, and to take the, the, the income that came from the, from in Venezuela's case, oil, but in the case of other countries, minerals and so on, uh, the, the, the extractive industries, which were mainly dominated and controlled by foreign capital, and which were, if you like, sucking out the wealth of, 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 Latin, of the whole of Latin America and taking it to northwards in the form of profit while the populations saw themselves, their living standards collapsing, hunger rising, no public spending, whatever little public spending there was, was, was taken back in the form of, of, of taxes and so on. So um, he came to power saying, number one, that Venezuela's oil must benefit Venezuela's majority population. A simple, very clear message. And the second thing he argued was for a new Bolivarian Republic. Now, what would that mean? Well, it became very clear what it meant uh, that the, the year after his election, in 1999, um, two things happened. One was a disastrous, devastating mudslide, which took out, which, you know, affected tens of thousands of people on the coast of, of Caracas. It was an absolute disaster. But in the midst of it, there was also um, a, a, if you like, a vast public debate to discuss a new constitution for Venezuela, a Bolivarian constitution for Venezuela. And the nature of, that, of, of the new Bolivarian Republic was summed up in one phrase, that it would be a participatory democracy. Now, this was 1999. Just to, to take the thing a bit further, within, so that was in, in late 1999, and a, 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 a convention was assembled with elected delegates to, to discuss, debate, and passed the new constitution. And in the midst of this disaster, there was a, an incredibly lively public debate, people gathering in the squares to discuss the nature of the new constitution, a genuine enthusiasm for the, for the proposition that Venezuela should change, and it should become uh, some model of democracy. And above all, that its enormous oil wealth should go to the benefit of the majority because in 1989, in late in the late 90s, 65% of Venezuela's population were categorized as being poor or extremely poor in a country which you know was was floating on a sea of oil. So um that um so that was the if you like the source of the enthusiasm for Chavez. Now, the old ruling class, which was doing very well out of oil, conspired and within two years conspired to try and throw Chavez out by organizing a coup in April of, 19, uh, of, of 2002. The coup failed. But the important thing was why and how the coup failed 
I'll relate that back to the to the pink tide in a second. The coup failed. Um, uh, everybody was involved: the the business classes, the Catholic Church, the arm, the commanding heights of the army, and so on, combined to try and bring Chavez down. And of course, the oil companies, who above all wanted their profits back. So. Um, uh, Chavez was arrested and 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 taken off, uh, and um, the the ruling class of Venezuela gathered together for a champagne reception in the presidential palace in Caracas in Miraflores, and they gathered there. Now it so happened that by accident there was an Irish television team in the palace who had been who were there just filming generally what was going on in Venezuela. And they were inside the palace. And there's a wonderful film called The Revolution Will Not Be Televised. And, and the film shows the cameras point out through the windows of the presidential palace to look at the streets around it. And what you see is, if you like, the hills come down into Caracas. The poor of the barrios flood down to the presidential palace, surrounded and shout that they will not leave until Chavez is brought back. And it, now, to, to my mind, to speak of the revolution is to speak of the in, of the involved, direct involvement of the mass of ordinary people in shaping their lives. That's what I think a revolution means. In that case, it was April 2002 in which when we can say there was a revolution. You know, the, the, the population of the poor flooded down to defend their president. And uh, the coup collapsed. It failed uh, dramatically. And uh, Chavez emerged triumphant. Um, you know, it, it, it's unimaginable. You couldn't imagine him being in a more powerful position. And I remember, next... Mike, I remember those images in that year. It was so... Impressive. I mean, you know, I I was in Chile. We have just uh, um, we have just come out of uh, our dictatorship when the Caracaso happened in 1989, and it was difficult to understand that a military coup would change the shape of Venezuela. So, thank you so much for explaining all of that for us and our audience. Um, and well, uh, yes, go ahead. No, go on. Sorry, sorry, I interrupted. No, no, I, I and and the popularity of Chavez was really impressive yeah. at well, the time. So, just wanted to acknowledge that because so many movements were happening at the same time. In 1994, we were having the Zapatistas uprising in uh, in Mexico, and uh, and in Chile, we were struggling into having our own democracy, the Chilean way, which is you know center right type of governments for more than a decade. And then uh, the people also were manifesting in Chile in big numbers uh, a few years after what you are describing, mm. where the dissolution about what democracy was bringing towards um, our nations and the impoverished uh, people were doing very so little, which seems to be the case I'll, still. I'll ask before, you know, an important question about, about um, in a sense, why... Uh, why Chavez had an impact in Venezuela is because he arrived as a member of, of as an outsider 
to the people who for 40 years had completely controlled and dominated Venezuelan society. Suddenly this guy with a working class accent uh, from a different background, uh, promising transform, you know, dramatic transformation, singing popular songs from the, from the, from the, from the uh, from the platforms of the presidency and so on, um, uh, and rescued by the mass of ordinary people. So this was very exciting in terms of, uh, of Venezuela itself. Right. I I even remember that he he changed the flag of Venezuela that some people consider like all you know so interesting to see how attached to a symbol that represents so many of the colonialism yes, and the yes, early but... formation of the of the nations well, in South America. At the same time, I mean, he, so uh, outside Latin America, in the, in, in the rest of the world and for the left internationally, after a decade of impoverishment, of exploitation, of the domination of neoliberalism, suddenly it seemed that there was a new possibility, a new promise of, 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 of revolution emerging once again in Latin America. And the important thing is it wasn't just in Venezuela, because in 1999, Chavez came to power. But within a few months, well, actually, in January of 2000, an event occurred, which was in some senses even more important, which was the what was called the water war in Cochabamba in Bolivia. The um, as part of the uh, neoliberal strategies, um, the the water was sold off to um, to a multinational corporation the the notorious bechtel corporation uh, became the owner of, of the water systems of the public water system of cochabamba imposed a decision taken by the the then bolivian government but there was an uprising against that decision a confrontation with the government and we could say the first real victory because the, the the mass movement of Cochabamba got the water back under public control. And it was then followed in the next two or three years in uh, in the um, the indigenous city of Los Altos above La Paz with another water war and a gas war in which the populations fought and won a battle against the policies uh, of, of austerity and so on. So the important thing was that what uh, what united what was happening in Bolivia, in Venezuela, and then later, though more problematically in Ecuador, was a central idea that to turn the tide and change the situation so that these separate that each country could control and use, earn and use the income from its extractivist industries to bring benefit, specifically social benefit, health systems, employment, education to the population, the, to the majority populations of those countries. And that's what Chavez promised. And after the failed coup, a couple of years, things happened very quickly. The, the, um, uh, it's a bit more ambivalent than ambiguous than it sounds because there wasn't a direct proposal to nationalize and expropriate the oil companies, but rather to to force them to give a much 
higher proportion of their earnings to the state. The idea then was that, um, uh, and by the way, this at a time when the oil price was rising dramatically. So there was money and there were funds for Chavez to, to, to announce and promise, you know, a whole series of social programs to benefit the majority population. There was no public health system in Venezuela, really, until Chavez established uh, using Cuban doctors, um, a public health system for the poor. Education was largely restricted and limited um, uh, to, uh, to, the, to, the, to, to the richer sections of the population. And Chavez instituted a system of public education free and available to people. Um, and um, so in a sense, what we saw in each of these cases, in Bolivia too and in Venezuela, was, if you like, the fulfillment of what had already once in historically been a policy previously which hadn't worked, which was the idea that there should be national control, sovereignty over the, over the, the, the mineral and oil wealth of these countries for the benefit of the population. The reverse, if you like, you know, the, the, the nature of neoliberal policies and austerity. And that was the promise. Yeah, thank uh, you. And, thank and, you. And, I'm going to interrupt whole... you, Mike. Sorry. I just want to make sure that our listeners know that we they are listening to KCYX community radio station here in the uh, county of Mendocino. And uh, I'm Loreto Rojas. I'm here with Carl Winslow. And we are talking with Mike Gonzalez, Professor Emeritus of Glasgow University in Scotland. He's author of many books and articles on Latin America. And recently he has written a piece that I recommend everybody to read about Venezuela in truth out. Um, uh, Mike, um, we are going into the last uh, 10 minutes of our program, 10 or 12 Good minutes Lord. more. I know time flies when one is... Uh, reviewing such a rich and um, interesting uh, and dramatic changes in a country like Venezuela, which is an emblematic country in Latin America. Uh, for us in Latin America, the presence of intellectuals like Andres Bello, who was actually a tutor of Simon Bolivar, uh, influenced the changes incredibly and, and created universities and uh, push all this agenda of liberating our continent. Um, but uh, I need to ask you in this last minute, um, what happened with all that project, if you have, and now I'm, I'm right, going yeah. to ask you to, to make a synthesis, uh, to make a resume, resume, no? Because yeah. we, we saw this project unfolding and it's 20 years after and we have this dramatic situation of Venezuelans fleeing Venezuela by foot. I mean, in, in Chile, which is my home country, we are totally overwhelmed by this. I mean, Chile, you know, a country where we never, we don't even have an immigration policy in place because we never, nobody ever thought that anybody would like to go to Chile. Nevertheless, there are hundreds of thousands of Venezuelans in Chile and many other places fleeing Venezuela. So what is the crisis about now? Right. Uh, I should I should really have, have talked less about everything else and, and taken more time to talk about this, because 
What, what I can say is obviously what Chavez represented was a particular kind of promise and aspiration to, to sovereignty, to control of, of the national wealth for the benefit of the majority. It seemed to be like that. Uh, and, and Chavez died suddenly in 2013. And between 2013 and today, the, what we have seen is is the collapse of that project, not the collapse of that project uh, and the transformation of, of what was to be a participatory democracy into the very opposite of that. And it's very hard to explain and in 10 minutes, almost impossible. All I can say is, let me start by saying that in Venezuelan people did not emigrate. You know, unlike uh, Mexico, which had long traditions of people emigrating northwards, uh, Venezuelans didn't emigrate. So the fact that today there are 7 million Venezuelans outside the country, driven by an economic crisis, by, you know, uh, an economic crisis which reached um, proportions in 2015, 16, when I was in Venezuela, when, uh, when, in a sense, medicines, food suddenly became unavailable, that the, the living standards of people collapsed, all the promises of, of improving the lives of, of the poor then reversed. And uh, suddenly poverty, there was poverty in, in, in uh, Venezuela again. Now, you know, it's very complicated and I'm, I'm, I'm sorry I haven't organized my time better to explain it. Uh, after 2011, uh, the U.S. imposed sanctions on on Venezuela because of initially because of the agreement between Venezuela and Iran, and later uh, under Trump in particular, simply as as an, as an attempt at, at engineering re regime change. But the reality of Venezuela today, and I have to leap to this unfortunately without a proper explanation, but as we look at Venezuela today. It, you know, and ironically, after the business of Ukraine, Venezuela is benefiting once again from being an oil producing country. But all the promise, all the promises, all the hopes and expectations that were embedded in the in the Chavez project uh, were frankly betrayed. If we look at Venezuela today, it is a country run by people who claim the legacy of Hugo Chavez, who came to power with Chavez, but who have used that power to enrich themselves to an extraordinary degree and to create now a new class of, of, of wealthy people whose uh, extravagant and luxurious lifestyles are really, uh, you know, an, an insult and an offense to those who have suffered as a result, to those who have had to cross the borders in search of work, in search of food, in search of medicines, you know, and uh, and and the the tragedy and the difficulty for all of us, for everybody abroad, is that the this new government, which is authoritarian, bureaucratic, and corrupt, is still describes itself using the language of Bolivarian, uh, of the Bolivarian Republic and of what Chavez called the socialism of the 21st century. It has nothing to do with socialism. It is barefaced and appalling exploitation for the benefit of a tiny group who have appropriated the instruments of power. 
Chavez, just before his death, um, uh, produced a, uh, his final program for the future of Venezuela. And he wrote a preface to it in which he said, we said we would appropriate the state, that we would transform the state, but it has transformed us. We failed to carry through the program, the, the project of taking over the state in the name of and for the benefit of the majority population, instead of which it's taken over by, by people who, who have, who, the only thing they preserved of the Chavez project is the rhetoric, it's the discourse and the claim, the false claim to be acting on behalf of and in the interest of the majority. Seven million people in, in, who are refugees, economic refugees fundamentally, is evidence enough in itself of what has really been happening. Um, Venezuela is an enormously wealthy country. It has not only oil, it has not only coltan, not only uh, minerals, it has gold, enormous amounts of gold. All of this in the south of the country, in the kind of wild west country around the borders with Guyana. That wealth, you know, is enriching a very few people. So uh, in, in the article you mentioned, I start out by an extraordinary thing when, you know, which is just but the fact that um, today in Caracas, you know, where I, I was there when there were, the supermarket shelves were empty, you know, when people couldn't find medicines when, and so on, just a few years ago. And now the supermarkets opening in the wealthy districts sell every kind of luxury. And as, by way of an example, there is a Ferrari dealership, which is open now in Venezuela. And I can assure you, that no members of no nobody who lives in the barrios up in the hills has bought a Ferrari for themselves. But what I can tell you is, and they don't eat in the new uh, Michelin star restaurants, and they don't go uh, and buy expensive whiskey in the in the luxurious supermarkets. They're watching it from the hills, and they must be thinking, "How did this happen? What happened here?" Well, it was, you know, Chavez created in a sense, it's a very difficult issue and too big to deal with here, but in a way, maybe he created a monster, a monster which was not the Bolivarian Republic, not the promise of, in, of independence and, and freedom, not the talk of revolution, but a, a, but a structure of power through a, a, a party. He created the Venezuelan Socialist Party in 2006, which every he, he called on people to join his new party. Six million joined. They joined because he promised a mass party which would represent and speak on behalf of and be and be 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 uh, be mobilized and mobilize the mass of ordinary people. That was his promise. And because it was Chavez and with his background, people believed it. Instead of which that turned into an instrument of power, which is now in the hands of a group of people who you know, I regard as completely unscrupulous. And people are confused about this. They're confused because of the language. They're confused because it's the same faces who came to power with Chavez. But those faces are now running a very different project, which brings no benefit for the majority of ordinary people. 
quite the contrary. It enriches a few at their expense. Uh, I guess we're I guess we're out of time. I think we need two uh, two or three more sessions on this. These uh, topics we've chosen are so interesting, but also so big. But um, this has been really really good, Professor Gonzalez. Uh, great. I hope we can talk again. And for our listeners, let me remind you that Professor Gonzalez is a historian of modern Latin America. He's the professor emeritus at Glasgow University in Scotland. And if we're not able to uh, get him back on the radio soon, I suggest uh, strongly that you look at his uh, article in Truth Out, that was out just this week, and to one or more of his, of his many books, uh, which will elaborate on the and the many um, points that he's made here today. So, uh, Loretto, are, are we about done? Yes, uh, thank you so much, Mike, Professor Gonzalez. So, as they say, cuenta conmigo. You know, I'll, I'll come back to the Mendocino Valley anytime you want. Wonderful. Thank you so much. And uh, thank you, everybody, for listening today. And we are going to be back with another very interesting program about... Uh, Latin America, particularly South America, in this series that we are doing at this time. Goodbye for now. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.